This week's episode is presented by 1895 Films and our content partners. Peter Hamilton's Documentary Business, a newsletter for documentary professionals, and Sunny Side of the Dock, the international marketplace for documentary and narrative experiences, coming to La Rochelle, France in June 2022. You know that feeling when you're looking for something, like your keys or that scrap of paper you scribbled a phone number onto last week? And you know it's here somewhere, but you just can't find it? Doug Rodinius knows that feeling well. In Timothy Dalton's second Bond movie, License to Kill, there were Kenworth semi-trucks in that film. Doug is the co-founder and archivist at the Ian Fleming Foundation. The third truck was one that was uh, custom-built by the famous French stuntman Remy Julien, who drove that semi up on two wheels. I couldn't find the side-driving truck. And there was a woman named Wendy. She was trying to find people that could tell me what happened to that truck. We do know that it came back from filming in Mexico. We do know that it was used for publicity. And then the trail went cold and no one knew what had happened with it. So I spent a number of years with her looking for it. And then I put the file away. And then years later, Wendy got back in touch with me and she said, are you sitting down? I'm Tobias Black, and this is Artifactual from 1895 Films. I remember the day my family got cable TV installed. I was probably five or six years old, and I can picture the cable guy running the cable through the wall from the landing into our apartment. At that age, the most exciting part about getting cable was Cartoon Network. But after a few years of binging on old Hanna-Barbera cartoons, I started flipping around, exploring the other options being piped in on this new TV superhighway. And for some reason, the genre I gravitated to most were TV documentaries. If you were watching TV in the 1990s, you know the kind. Who built Stonehenge? How did they build the pyramids? What really happened to the Titanic? I loved that stuff. I didn't know this then, of course, but that era, the 90s through the early 2000s, was kind of a boom time for TV documentaries. Before then, documentaries had mostly been the province of PBS, with maybe a few wildlife programs scattered around on other channels. With the launch of channels like A&E in 1984 and the Discovery Channel in 1985, there was now proof that channels specializing in nonfiction that wasn't news could be viable businesses. Other channels followed. The Travel Channel in 1987, The Food Network in 1993, HGTV in 1994, Animal Planet, Investigation Discovery, and Science all in 1996. National Geographic was a little late to the game, launching in the US in 2001, but their eponymous channel had been available in other parts of the world since 1997. But for me, there was only one documentary channel that really mattered. Step into the past with the History Channel. For all of history, all in one place. Call your cable company and ask them to carry the History Channel. The History Channel launched in 1995. Many of those early History Channel shows are iconic, to me at least. History's Mysteries, Haunted History, Modern Marvels, and of course approximately one million documentaries about World War II. And pretty much everybody who was working in the documentary television world at that time worked on a History Channel show at one point or another. One of those people is our boss here at 1895 Films, Tom Jennings. 
My name is Tom Jennings, and I am the executive producer and president of 1895 Films, a documentary production company. Tom founded 1895 in 2011, but back in 2002, he was writing and directing TV docs during that era's cable documentary boom. I was a writer-producer. I did not have my own company yet. I was actually working for someone who is now our supervising producer, a gentleman named Rob Kirk. And uh, Rob had a company called Digital Ranch. He was doing a lot of programming for the History Channel. And this was still in the very early days of the History Channel. You know, they pretty much needed all kinds of programming because they didn't have any programming. Established channels have the luxury of their back catalogs. They can re-air old episodes of popular shows to fill in any gaps in their programming hours. New channels, like history was then, have to either license material from other places, which is expensive, or make new shows. So they were furiously commissioning new documentaries. The History Channel liked the idea of doing something with James Bond. And I think Rob Kirk and I kind of kicked around various ideas like the locations of James Bond or the explosions in movies about James Bond. And we then we came up with the, the spy tools and in the discussions with the network and talking with them about various ideas, someone called it gadgets on the phone call. And everybody loved that idea because it was all encompassing. You could do anything with James Bond gadgets. We were looking for people who knew a lot about James Bond, and we started doing research. We had to get permission from the production company that makes the James Bond movies called Eon Productions. In talking with Eon Productions, we asked, being a U.S.-based production, was there anyone or anything in the United States that we could get, who we could get uh, on camera that would happen to know a a lot about James Bond. And they immediately suggested a gentleman named Doug Redanius. And Doug was and is the vice president of the Ian Fleming Foundation. We did not know there was an Ian Fleming Foundation. But through a series of phone calls and asking the right questions, we were able to track down Doug. And uh, we soon found out that he has the largest uh, collection of James Bond memorabilia in the United States and probably in the world at his house. My name's Doug Redinius. I'm a co-founder and currently the archivist to the Ian Fleming Foundation. My duties are to look after 41 James Bond vehicles that we've accumulated over a nearly 30-year period. He lives in kind of farm country of Illinois. So we immediately booked a trip to Chicago. And the first thing we did was he opened this locked door in his house to his James Bond room. And it was overflowing with everything that could fit in a house having to do with James Bond. There were puzzles and dolls and all kinds of spy gadgets from the actual films. There must have been several thousand pieces of James Bond material in this room. 
So we were already blown away by what he had in his house. And he said, but this isn't even the good stuff. He said, follow me. And so we went out back on his property to these very large steel sheds that look like airplane hangers. Again, not knowing what to expect. And he unlocked one of the doors and he slid it open with, I remember it took a great deal of force. This was not a small, cheap door. And there inside were all these original vehicles from the movies that he had collected and found over the years. I could not believe it. The hangar was uh, two or three stories high. It looked like an airplane hangar. You might not fit a 747 in it, but certainly a 727. And um, it was very wide. Uh, It had a nice gravel floor, well-maintained. It looked like it could withstand a tornado, which is not uncommon in that area. I'm sure he built it with the idea that if a tornado came through, the Bond vehicles would be safe and sound. Um, There was no echo in it, considering it was all steel walls. And that was because there were so many vehicles inside. Most of them were in working order, which was remarkable. But there's an elephant in this room, or airplane hangar. How did the biggest collection of Bond prop vehicles end up in rural Illinois? To answer that question, we need to go back to the beginning, both of the Bond movie franchise and of Doug Redenius' story. Back in 1964, I was taken to the cinema by a babysitter. I was uh, eight years old. We went to a double feature. It was Goodbye Charlie, and the second film was Goldfinger. But then when James Bond came on and there was a girl in the bathtub, she sort of grabbed us by the hair and yanked us out of the theater. And when I got home, my dad said, you know, how how was the movie? And I, you know, put my head down a little disheartened and said, well... We didn't get a chance to watch this cool guy that had a bird on his helmet and wore a really nice white tuxedo. And uh, my dad knew right away it was James Bond. That was my first introduction. But Doug didn't run out of the theater in 1964 and start buying Bond memorabilia immediately. It wasn't until 1980 that he began collecting in earnest. So my love first started in antiques. And then after I got out of antiques, because antiques can take up a large amount of room in your home, uh, furniture and things of that nature. So I kind of gave that up. And about 1980, my wife said, you know, you really ought to find something to collect because I know you like doing that. So I pondered a little bit and thought, You know, do I want to collect beer cans or baseball cards? And I remembered that I had had some gum cards from back in the day when I went to see Goldfinger. I still had them. They were in a drawer. So I thought, you know, I'll just see what there is to collect James Bond wise and put a little ad in a local newspaper. And lo and behold, this fellow responded. And he had one of the little gold Corgi Aston Martins from Goldfinger. So I was on my way. Then I just threw it into overdrive and 
collected like gangbusters. And you have to remember that in 1980, uh, there was no internet, no cell phones. I, I was collecting things by word of mouth, writing letters, uh, going to toy shows, going to antique flea markets to see what I could find. Um, so it was extremely difficult, but it was at a time when that stuff wasn't very expensive either. As Doug's collection grew through the 1980s, he got to know some of the people involved in making some of the movies, including the main producers, the Broccoli family, who ran Eon Productions. My family, my wife and daughter and I were invited to uh, the premiere of uh, Timothy Dalton's first Bond movie uh, in 87, and then spent a lot of time in the UK between 87 and 89. That became a uh, 30-plus year friendship with the Broccoli's and, and all the people that make the Bond movies. And not only did Doug become friends with the Broccoli's, he ended up getting a non-speaking role as a wedding guest in the title sequence of the 1989 Bond movie, License to Kill which has one of the best title songs of all time, by the way. It's by Gladys Knight. I was very fortunate to have a really small part in Timothy Dalton's uh, second Bond movie, License to Kill, uh, with Carrie Lowell, Robert Davi. Pretty great if you're a lifelong Bond fan. But at this point, Doug's collection is still comprised of smaller pieces of Bond memorabilia. No vehicles that need airplane hangers to store them in. But that was all about to change. The producers received a telephone call around 1990 from the Intrepid Aircraft Carrier Museum in New York Harbor that they had discovered that one of the 24-foot submarines that they had had for a long, long time was from a Bond movie, and it didn't have any military significance to them. They asked the producers if they wanted it back, and they went, no, no, we don't want it back, but we, we know some guys that might want it back. So they called my partner, Mike Van Blerkum, and the third member of the co-finding trio, John Cork. And they asked Mike and the two of us, do you want to buy a submarine? So as collectors, we all said, yeah, we do. Uh, so I went out and got it. I brought the submarine back to Illinois and began the process of trying to put it back together again. And somehow to this day, I don't know how People Magazine found out that sitting in the backyard of a guy from Illinois, there was a James Bond submarine, but they did. And they reached out, wanted to do a story. They shot pictures, did the story. And it ran in the issue in 1991, where Liz Taylor was marrying Larry Fortinsky and Michael Jackson was the best man. And when People Magazine published their story about Doug, calls and letters about other Bond vehicles started pouring in. In 1991, that anything in People Magazine was huge. People Magazine was sort of the pinnacle if you were gonna be part of what that time was social media. Um, so that brought a lot of other people out, you know, people that had this, that, and the other thing and said, oh, yeah, we've got a boat that was used in a Bond movie, and we've got this that was used in a Bond movie. So without a, without a lot of effort, offers and, and information was flowing into my office at home. We suddenly went from having one submarine to about six vehicles, and today we own 41 James Bond vehicles. Out of the 41 vehicles, I found 39 of them. And the search for all those vehicles wasn't always easy. Here's Tom Jennings again. Almost all of them had 
a crazy story behind them. As happens on a lot of movies, when the movie wraps, somehow, some way, things just seem to disappear. Crew members take these things home. Prop masters say, oh, you might use that at some later date. They never do. Here's Doug. Production companies didn't have an interest in hanging on to that stuff. The live and let die jump boat that jumps over the police car, it was sold off and it was used as a ski boat, uh, a pleasure craft. They found the Moonraker boat and that was used for fishing. The Lotus submarine cars, two of them, uh, were left behind in the Bahamas. They gave them to the junkyard owner who they had hired to raise and lower vehicles into the ocean during the production of Spy Who Loved Me. And when they were finished, they just said, hey, do you want a couple of these Bond cars? And he said, yeah. He threw one of them up on top of a milk truck. And then the other one, he put on cinder blocks out at the entrance to his property. And he painted it red and put Christmas tree lights on it. And that's where we found it. Threw it up on top of a milk truck? Is that what he just said? He just threw it up on top of an old junk milk truck and forgot about it. It was a panel like a UPS truck type truck. It had a tree growing up through the middle of it. Yeah, I had to cut the tree out of it and then get it down. I'm still not sure I totally understand. But anyway, Tom's History Channel documentary ended up focusing on one vehicle in particular, the Q-boat. So as we're walking around this massive hangar and looking at all of the vehicles that Doug had collected, one caught my eye right away because it's so sleek and sexy and it just screams James Bond. And it, uh, it was the Q-boat from The World Is Not Enough, which was made in 1999. First of all, it was pristine. It had all of the gadgets on the dashboard, I remember. Uh, Doug described it as looking like the interior of the space shuttle. And uh, I just fell in love with the look of the thing. And I said, gee, I really would hope that this is one of the ones that actually works. And he said, as a matter of fact, it does work. Would you like to take it out on the Kankakee River? I said, as a matter of fact, I'd love to see a James Bond Q-boat on the Kankakee River in Illinois. That would be a sight to behold. And uh, he had a trailer to tow it on. But because it's such an odd shape, there was no way to cover it. And we started driving through a couple of small towns in order to get to the river. We actually stopped for gas somewhere. And within two minutes, there were probably 30 people just hanging out, like asking questions. Isn't that from the movie? How did you get that? Is it a replica? And um, so we hung out at the gas station for quite some time while he answered all the questions. And then we took it down to the river. After he put it in the water, he was at a small dock and, you know, made sure that we're, we were ready to go and ready to film him. And uh, the boat itself has a V8, I think, Chevrolet engine in it. So it operates 
unlike other boats where you have a throttle that you would move back and forth, it has a gas pedal on the floor, uh, but no brake, of course. And he just stomped on that gas pedal and the nose of this little boat rose up in the air over the water and he took off faster than any boat I'd ever seen. He had told us that the boat could travel 80 miles an hour on the water. And it did. It hauled. And he would fly past us and he'd do a little turn and kind of splash us with water as he went by. We mounted the early 2000s version of GoPros on the thing. Uh, we had, at one point had our camera operator riding on the bow to film Doug. We asked him to run it up and down the river quite a bit for filming purposes. Eventually, the cameras turned off and Tom and the crew went home. But that didn't mean that Doug was done hunting. And there was one vehicle in particular that was Doug's white whale. It was a truck that had been used in License to Kill, the movie Doug had had a small role in. There were Kenworth semi-trucks in that film, and Kenworth built three of them. Uh, one did a wheelie. The second one was one that they had outfitted the driver and all the controls back in the sleeper behind the driver. And then the third truck was one that was uh, custom built by the famous French stuntman Remy Julien, who drove that semi up on two wheels with a big gas tanker connected to it. So I found where the wheelie truck was. That was at a community college in Florida. The specialty driving truck had been stripped of all that special equipment and sold off as just a normal semi that a private guy was driving freight around the U.S. for many, many years until it was involved in a catastrophic wrecked and it no longer existed. So I couldn't find the side driving truck. And there was a woman named Wendy. She worked as a liaison between Kenworth and the producers. She was trying to find people that were still around that could tell me what happened to that truck. We do know that it came back uh, from filming in Mexico. We do know that it was used for publicity. And then the trail went cold and no one knew what was happened, what had happened with it. So I spent a number of years with her looking for it. And then I put the file away, thanked Wendy and told her if anything ever came up. And then years later, Wendy got back in touch with me and she said, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah, I am. And she said, well, I attended a trade show and I was standing around socializing with some of my old friends. And I just happened to be standing in the right spot in this big ballroom. And behind me, I heard these young guys talking about James Bond. So, Doug, I turned around and interjected myself into their conversation. I said, excuse me, did I just hear you talk about James Bond? And the three guys said, yeah. She said, were you by chance talking about the Kenworth semis. Yeah, we were. And she said, well, I'm working with an organization that's been searching for one of those. And the guy said, well, which one are you looking for? And she said, well, we're looking for the one that was customized and did 
the two-wheel stunt on, on its side. <laughs> and without hesitation, the guy goes, oh, I know where that truck is. And he proceeded to, uh, to tell her that it would had been donated to a fighter fighting college in Oregon and had been tipped over. And the college was training firemen how to get in and out of uh, uh, semi. So I reached out to the college uh, administrator. He put me in touch with the instructor and I said, here's who we are. And do you still have this semi, this Kenworth? He said, oh, yeah. And I said, I, I gather you know this was a James Bond semi at one time. He said, oh, yeah, we've known all along that it had been used in a James Bond movie. And I said, would you have any interest in selling it? And after he stopped laughing, after about 30 seconds, he said, Doug, you don't want this semi. It is a complete pile of junk. And I said, well, that's where you're wrong. I've been looking for this semi for about 14 years, so I don't care what kind of shape it's in. He said, well, if you want it, I'm not going to sell it to you. I'm going to give it to you. And I said, well, if you can tip it back upright and put air in the tires, uh, I'll get it out of there. So we did, and it's currently sitting inside of our warehouse. It had been sitting out in the great Northwest for a long, long time. So I don't need to tell you, you know, it was, had been rained on. Uh, it was in horrendous condition. Our goal is to someday get it restored. So that is near and dear to me, not only from the standpoint as I, I had a small little role at the pre-title sequence filming of that movie, but uh, I never gave up on that. I asked Tom why he thought people became so emotionally invested in these pieces of memorabilia. People love the idea that this isn't a fake, this isn't a replica, this really was on that set. This is in all those scenes that I loved so much. And now I get to stand next to it. It allows us to relive our youth or childhood or young adulthood in a brand new way that takes us back to the first time the lights went down in the theater and we watched the film on spool. Now we get to be closer to it. We feel like we're a part of it. For Doug, those memories include going and seeing that first Bond movie with his dad back in 1964. And that started a tradition between the both of us. We, we went and saw all the Bond movies whenever they would come out uh, in the cinema up until the very last one that he passed away about 15 years ago. So maybe it makes a little more sense that all this stuff ended up with Doug out in rural Illinois after all. Thanks for listening. This episode of Artifactual was written and produced by me, Tobiah Black. Our producer is Will DePagne. Fran at 17th Street Audio did the mixing and sound design for this episode. Our executive producers are Tom Jennings and Ellen Farmer at 1895 Films. If you want to learn more about our documentaries, you can find us on Twitter at 1895films or at 1895films.com. And if you want more artifactual content, you can visit our website, artifactualpodcast.com.